Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thank you for tuning in to the Paul Leslie Hour. I'm honored that you're here. And on this episode, we have a very special guest. He is a thinking man, a professor, a raconteur. He has been published in newspapers, writing on a number of topics for his columns. He is a professor of political science at the University of North Georgia, Gainesville, Dr. Douglas Young. Thank you very much for being with me. Thank you so much, Paul, for having me on your program. I'm, it's a real honor and a thrill. I'm, I'm elated to be here. I think that most stories are best from the beginning. Could you give us a snapshot on where you're from and just kind of a little bit of a portrait, what you would hear, see, or experience on any given day when you were growing up? Let's see. I was born in 1961 in Bartow, Florida, which is in central Florida in Polk County which at that time was the Orange Grove capital of the world. My father was a high school math teacher who became the high school principal in the mid-1960s. My mother taught first and second grade in the local public school. My father was also the only Southern high school teacher I'm aware of who, in the 1960s, voluntarily chose to racially desegregate his high school ahead of when the the federal court ordered it to be done. And uh, I'm very proud of him for that. And I spent the first four and a half years of my life in Bartow, and I just remember it as idyllic. And then in 1966, the family moved to Athens, Georgia, about 60 miles northeast of Atlanta, where my father went to graduate school to get his PhD, and my mother would teach kindergarten for 24 years. And then my father, uh, upon completing his doctorate in 1968, would be one of the few UGA PhD graduates to be hired by the university. And he was a professor for decades at the university. And so, most of my formative years growing up were spent in Athens, Georgia, which, looking back, was truly ideal because Athens at that time probably had between 15 and, excuse me, 50 and 75,000 people. It was a a university town, so it had all the cultural amenities that a, a large university campus can offer in terms of really exciting guest speakers, performers, from around the country, lots of movies, plays, etc. But it was also a really traditional southern town in, in the best sense of the word. It was very friendly. Athens has a wide variety of different communities, and they seem to get along really well. You, you can find whatever you want in Athens. And Athens had so many of the wonderful cultural advantages of a university town really similar to in Atlanta, but without the congestion, the crime, the pollution that a big city has. 
And so I really think that I was very blessed to grow up in Athens. And I was also extremely blessed to have loving parents. And uh, I grew up in middle-class suburbia. And so it strikes me that on the one hand, I I grew up quite sheltered. But yet, if you look at the history of when I grew up, when and where I grew up, I grew up in some pretty tumultuous times. The the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the the race riots of the mid-late 60s, major political assassinations of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy in 1968, the war in Vietnam, the Richard Nixon presidential resignation. I mean, there was a lot of turmoil going on in the country, and I guess I was sheltered from it in that I was too young for the draft. And it was kind of funny being in Athens in the late 60s, early 70s, when we had a lot of hippies. I think my grandparents in rural Georgia and rural South Carolina were concerned about their grandchildren being reared in that environment. But to show how innocent my life was at church, uh, in the downtown First Presbyterian Church, if uh, Corey and I, my younger brother, if we were real good in big church and didn't squirm too much uh, during the Sunday sermon as a reward. Mom and dad would ve- take a detour on the way home and drive us by the hippie house. And, you know, we could see the hippies. And <laughs> so, you know, that looking back on it, I mean, that's, it's all, you know, that's rather innocent. But growing up as a really small child, I, I can remember the first presidential election that I recall was the 1968 one. And I was for Bobby Kennedy, even though I was only six. I don't know why, you know, I favored anybody at that age. But I remember when when he was shot to death, I was not really all, I was. I don't remember being shocked or even all that surprised because to my little mind, that's what happened to people on TV. I can remember as a small child every day, at the end of the day, daddy would come home from work and we would sit down and have dinner watching the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And for the first 10 minutes, we would watch people get blown away in Vietnam. And then for the next 10 minutes, we'd watch people scream about it all over America. And I do remember when I, I can remember uh, heated arguments about the war in Vietnam, even when I was in elementary school. And Oh, I remember uh, my favorite art teacher, Mr. Pitts. Uh, he and I would uh, debate the war in Vietnam, how patient he was with me. I was just a, an elementary school student. But I can remember how agonizing it was, how gut-wrenching when the South Vietnamese government fell in Vietnam. And Oh, I remember how traumatic it was when President Nixon resigned because of the Watergate scandal. That was really shocking to my 12-year-old mind, the, the idea that a president could lie. So, there were some tumultuous times, and in the late 70s, gosh, the Iranian Muslim revolution of Ayatollah Khomeini, and oh, the, the gas, enormous gas hikes in the gas prices, and people waiting so long for gasoline. So, it was, my youth was sort of schizophrenic in that I was so blessed to grow up in a, in a stable home. I had a good education, lots of, of fine friends, but it was in the midst of a larger 
cultural, political, social climate that was just in the midst of real turmoil, if not often chaos. I guess I had sort of a quite a bifurcated upbringing, as every as as loads of people in my generation did. What would you say you're the happiest doing? The first thing that comes to mind is lecturing. I genuinely love teaching. Um, I don't enjoy every aspect of being a professor, but being in the classroom is a blast. All my life, I, I didn't understand it, but even as a child, I had an insatiable curiosity to want to learn about all kinds of things. And then I just had this burning passion to want to share whatever I'd learned with others. And I can honestly say, Paul, I never, growing up, ever dreamed of being a a teacher. That thought truly didn't cross my radar screen. And my parents, even though they were both educators, they never pushed uh, education as a professional. They never even remotely suggested it. They were wonderful about letting me choose for myself. My father was great about urging me to take as many classes in college and as many different fields as possible so I would know what was the right major for me. I had no idea that I would ever want to be a teacher. But once I did become a professor, I realized, gosh, you know, this is this is really what I want to, to do. I, I love being able to talk about politics and society and culture and religion and philosophy, art, and gosh, to, to, to talk, to, to converse with those ab- others about that, to read and write about the topics that I read and write and talk and think about on my own anyway, to, to get paid for all that. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. Confucius or Confucius, the ancient Chinese philosopher, wrote that, uh, he wrote, choose a profession you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And I would honestly teach for free. Now, I haven't told the dean that, and (laughs) whenever I've shared that thought with any colleagues, they've quickly told me, yeah, and don't you ever tell him that. But I just love teaching. I love lecturing. I love facilitating discussions, and, oh, it's just, I really will get an endorphin or dopamine rush during and after a really good lecture. If I go into a a lecture not feeling well, troubled about whatever, gosh, uh, there's nothing like a good lecture to really boost my mood enormously. And often when I'm the most stressed, is I think when I give my best lectures, because I just go all out. Maybe whatever is worrying me, you know, I'm able to sort of channel that anxiety into the lecture and really make it a performance. And gosh, it's just so rewarding when a lot of students will uh, stay after class for long periods of time to discuss whatever the lecture topics were, in more detail. I mean, I just love that. So, I I love lecturing. I also really enjoy writing. I love when when I get fired up about 
some issue and I want to write a, a guest op-ed column, an essay for a newspaper uh, or an online publication, I, I love writing that. I love writing poetry. Um, I've been doing a lot more of that in recent years as I've gotten ever more disillusioned about politics. And uh, that's a real thrill. There, uh, there's a unique feeling I get that I think comes from creation, creating something out of your head. And, you know, as much as I love teaching, three summers ago, I did something that I had dreamed about for 40 years since high school. And I had some free time and I sat down and I wrote a novel. And I didn't even know if I could churn out a short story. And I remember one of my favorite novelists, Ernest Hemingway, wrote something like, uh, oh, writing is simple. Just sit at the typewriter and bleed. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, gosh, you know, can I do it? Well, I mean, it, it, will it be too emotionally gut-wrenching? Paul, it was the most enjoyable single creative experience of my life. I just loved it. And there was something about writing a novel where I didn't have to meet a 750-word op-ed requirement, or I didn't have to fit a certain type of, fit my thinking into a certain type of poetic format. I just had complete freedom to write whatever I wanted. That was just, oh, that was thrilling. So I guess communicating ideas and, and the discourse of ideas, whether it's on my own or with others, gives me a, a great deal of pleasure. And, and you know, I love listening to music and movies, certain TV programs, but uh, there's something unique about uh, creating, about uh, the transmission of ideas that really fires me up in a unique way. Well, since you mentioned music there, you have sometimes been known to play recorded music, songs, in your <laughs> class. That's right. Why? I think that music is a uniquely powerful emotional medium. I've heard Dennis Prager, my guru, uh, say that, I believe he said that man is the only species that has music. Now, maybe you could argue songbirds do, but I don't know if they think of it as music. I don't know if it's for entertainment, maybe. But I think that as, as effective as a good lecture can hopefully be in conveying certain ideas and emotions uh, and times and places to students about different periods of history and people and phenomena, I think that um, film and music can really capture certain aspects of history uniquely well. And so I remember when I used to teach Western and world civilization history courses, I would do a big unit on the history of uh, art. And I especially zeroed in on romanticism of the late 18th and 19th and, and 20th centuries, because I think romantic art is such a uniquely Western type of art that really helps convey how committed to freedom and independence historically modern Western Judeo-Christian civilization has been. And so, in lecturing about the Romantic artists, uh, I love to play different types of Romantic music, whether it's 
Claude Debussy or, or in the rock era, the Beatles, the Doors, people like that. And students, I think, can really grasp what romanticism is all about, a lot, particularly regarding music, if they hear it. I mean, Steve Martin uh, said that to write about music is like uh, trying to describe architecture uh, with dance. And um, so uh, I enjoy playing music, uh, you know, for that reason. I also enjoy playing music in class um, when I have lectured on Vincent van Gogh. I'll talk about his art and and his uh, tragic, but also I think quite inspiring personal biography. And there's a song by Don McLean off his 19... 19- 70 or 71 American Pie album, Vincent, which I think in just maybe four or five minutes does a magnificent job of conveying the essence of the life and art and passion and tragedy of Vincent van Gogh. And so I've always played Vincent whenever uh, I've lectured about van Gogh. And I'll first lecture about him so the students will have hopefully a good context within which to better appreciate the, the song. But I think that there's something about the, the words, the lyrics of that song, and they're so beautifully matched, melded with the music, that that really can get across emotionally, really to the, to the soul of the students, what my lecture can, can perhaps only do intellectually. And I think it's only fair to tell the listeners out there that I had the chance to tell Don McLean about your your annual celebration of his song and and about how that is about Vincent Van Gogh and he was very touched by it and he oh. remarked he remarked that uh you know you told me that every time you played that song that the classroom was silent and he said well that's fitting because the very first time I played it for someone their response was silence I'm so touched. I I think about that now when I think of that song, and I'm so honored that you shared that with him. And I, I it's, oh, I, uh, that's that's I get chills just thinking about that. I mean, he's such a tremendous artist, and has always struck me as a very kind gentleman. Absolutely. So, what has this lifetime of academia, and this lifetime that you've had of communicating with people, what has that taught you about life? I think people do have a hunger to learn and to understand and to grow and mature. And I think that we are all capable of learning. We're capable of a lot more than we or our peers or the society gives us credit for. And it's it's so inspiring to talk in my office sometimes with a, a number of my students. And in the course of the conversation, they will start talking about their personal lives, their family lives. And oh my goodness, when I learn about uh, some of the, the trials, some of the, the burdens that they're going through, that they're, they're shouldering, it's quite sobering. And when I learn about how so many of them may be dealing with difficult family situations, and they may be the first generation in their family tree to go to college, 
But hey, they're in college and they're working one or two jobs to help pay their way through school, even if maybe their high school didn't prepare them for academic work at the collegiate level. They're trying hard, and and it's just it's wonderful to see students really improve with their writing skills. When so many students may do poorly on the first test, but they work hard, they come to the office, they get help, they write practice essays for me to practice great, and they do dramatically better on their remaining tests, and they radically improve their grade for the course. That's really inspiring, and when a student changes his major from you know, biology to political science because he really enjoyed my class. I mean, oh, that's, you know, I, that's a unique kind of uh, enjoyment. And so I, I think that we're all capable of so much more than we realize. And I am so proud of all the students who are determined to, to go to college, who have the ambition to do all that they can in this life. And ambition is a good thing. I think ambition has gotten a really bad rap in recent decades. I I think that without ambition, uh, we'd still be living in caves. Ambition is good. Being in academia has also taught me that it's important to be humble, that we should always be learning. And we should perhaps never close the door regarding any subject. Because, gosh, I can think of some issues uh, on which I've really changed my mind uh, over my 33-year-plus teaching career. And so it's always important to get the whole range of opinions about every issue, about every topic. I think it's true, the old cliche, that the the more we learn, the more or the more we know, the the more we realize that we still have so much more to learn. We, I know with me, whenever I'm really interested in researching a subject, it's, it's really enjoyable, it's thrilling, exciting to learn more and more about it. It's, it's a, an act of discovery. But it's also humbling because it, it reminds me of just how little I really knew about that topic. So, and that's one of the best things about class discussion, to learn from other people's perspectives and experiences. So often, I'll have a really detailed set of lessons for some topic, and I'll think, oh, yeah, this is really covering all the different angles of it, and I'm trying to be fair to all sides, to be really balanced. But then, in the course of the discussion, after the lecture, students will make so many excellent points that i would never thought of, and I'll amend my uh, lesson plans accordingly. <laughs> so, I think that being a college professor for all these years has taught me that there's just an endless variety of life experiences and perceptions and beliefs and perspectives, and it's ideal to learn about as many as possible and to always challenge yourself and to to realize that, hey, you know, this is just my opinion. And as I try to remind my students, uh, if ever I share my personal view on some matter, hey, but just remember this little, you know, Dr. Young's little opinion plus a dollar fifty will buy you a Coke across the hall. <laughs> Your opinion is worth far, far more than mine. So always think for yourself, critically, analytically, and always independently.
Well, on that note, what is something you have completely changed your stance on? Something you, you formerly, you thought this way, and now you don't think that way anymore? I can think of two pretty big issues on which I've really flipped. And let me preface this, if I may, Paul, by saying that for the purposes of my lectures, I do not tell the students where I stand on any issue. I'll, all right, for example, the two issues I'm, uh, I'll share with you that I've flip-flopped on are the legalization of, of uh, presently outlawed drugs and abortion. The way I lecture on those and every other issue is I'll first talk about, uh, for example, drug legalization. I'll talk about the history of drugs in America in terms of the war on drugs, prohibition, that kind of thing. And then I'll, I'll, give, I'll make my strongest case for legalization of marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, whatever. And then I'll, make my, I'll give my strongest case against legalizing any of those substances. And then and I'll pass around propaganda on both sides. And then I'll throw the floor open for discussion. In terms of, since you asked about my personal views on issues on which I've really changed, regarding drugs... I've always and still do regard all the presently outlawed drugs in this country, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, et cetera, et cetera, as very, very dangerous, including marijuana. And I used to strongly uh, support all those drugs being outlawed. But over the last 15 years or so, in middle age, I, I changed, and I, I actually I embraced the libertarian view that uh, all drugs should be legal. But I still I, I may be the only fool who's who's uh, naive enough to uh, want to legalize all drugs, but I just don't want anyone to use any of them. <laughs> but I I think that people have an inherent God given natural right to ingest, if they're adults, and they're not hurting anyone else, to ingest whatever they want. And that includes alcohol and tobacco, which I think are terribly dangerous too. But I'm just concerned that um, I I don't think the so-called war on drugs has worked. It's, It's arguably, there's a case to be made for it, which I respect. We don't have as much drug usage in America today as we did uh, say in the 1970s, I've read that marijuana usage in America peaked in 1979, my senior year in high school. I had nothing to do with it. Uh, <laughs> but I think that if we legalized these dangerous drugs and we, we treated these drugs as health issues like we do with alcohol and tobacco, I think that we could hopefully, I may be naive, but hopefully we could dramatically reduce the usage of tobacco and alcohol. We could hopefully dramatically reduce the usage of presently outlawed drugs as much as we have alcohol and tobacco. I mean, the fact is, gosh, now not even 20% of Americans smoke. Well, when I was a little fella in the 1960s, I think close to half of Americans smoked. And we don't drink nearly as much as we used to. And yet alcohol and tobacco are legal. And because they're legal compared to the price of illegal drugs, Alcohol and, and tobacco are very cheap. 
I'm not aware of anybody mugging someone else or burglarizing anybody's home for money to buy a pack of smokes or, or a six-pack of beer. I really believe that everybody who is abusing any kind of drug, cigarettes, tobacco, um, alcohol, cocaine, marijuana, is irresponsibly self-medicating deeper-rooted emotional, psychological, spiritual problems. Uh, I absolutely believe that. And so I, I think that the drug is a symptom of deeper-rooted problems that need to be addressed. And I've often wondered if future generations may look at how we treat drug addicts the way we now recoil at how we used to treat mentally ill people a century ago. But I could be wrong. I mean, I, I've switched my views on enough issues to cringe when I think back to, particularly when I was younger, and I was more prone to give a personal view of some issue in the classroom. And, and I've now changed my mind. I think, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. So I could be wrong. The other issue that I've, probably the, the other of the two biggest issues that I've arguably flipped on would be abortion. All during my youth and early middle age, I'm 58 now, until at some point in my 40s, I supported abortion rights. I even wrote a number of uh, columns for newspapers endorsing abortion rights because I saw abortion rights through the prism of individual sovereignty, women's rights, that kind of thing. But I had a, a couple of, um, for me, profound emotional experiences that sort of helped steer me in the other direction. One was, I remember many, many years ago, a former girlfriend called me in desperation because she was pregnant, she was not married, and she did not want to marry the father, and her family and the, the guy's family were of different religions, and she was convinced her family would basically excommunicate her. So she was going to have an abortion. And she uh, wanted to know if uh, I would take her to the clinic for the abortion. And I said, sure. I mean, we had not dated in, in many years, but, but we were still friends. And you know, I, I just I didn't think that much about it. And she was going to go to the clinic, I think, in four or five days. And I was feeling great when I had that conversation with her. But I noticed each day, the rest of that week, I was, I, I just, my stomach was feeling ever more queasy. And I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't have a fever. And, but I just, my stomach was just giving me all these, all this trouble. And then the night before I was to take this ex-girlfriend to the clinic, my stomach was just uh, in, in, not. I mean, I, I, and I couldn't go through with it. I was, I was about ready to throw up. And I realized it was because I just felt completely unnerved about being party to potentially taking a human life. And so I, I couldn't go through with it. And then many years later, when I was 
wandering the Field Museum in Chicago, which is the big natural history museum, the one with the big shark's fin on top. And I just happened to be wandering around, and I wandered into this room, and it was a, it was a weird setting because it was a, a room all in black, but there were these white little display cases which showed human fetuses. And I believe they were exact molds of human fetuses. And below each replica uh, or mold, it would tell you how many months or, or weeks old that fetus would be. And I was stunned at how very early in the pregnancy, even in the first term, the, the first trimester, first three months, you could see remarkable human detail in terms of hands, feet, toes, fingers, fingernails. And I, and that was pretty significant. So I guess the, the two issues that, that immediately spring to mind that uh, on which I have had the biggest turnabouts would be illegal drugs and abortion. But I respect both sides of both those issues. And as I try to convey to my classes when discussing them, there's a whole range of opinions about these issues. Uh, it's not just broad, deep strokes of black and white, but many, many variations of gray. Hmm. Life is complicated, way too complex for there to be just two sides and two sides only, in my opinion. But nonetheless, you did change your stance on these two issues. Yes. That's something that we can all do as people. We can always change how we think about something. But why are people so resistant to changing their stance, to changing their beliefs? I think there's comfort in repetition, in sticking in that same groove in the record, following the same footpath. You know, why is it that people live, stubbornly live such frustrating, lonely lives? Because all change, I think, is frightening. I mean, the most inherent basic human fear, I think, is fear of the dark. I mean, I can remember as a little boy being afraid to sleep with the light off sometimes. And so, the idea of investigating a different point of view uh, from our own, maybe a, a radically different one, is probably unsettling or even frightening to us or to a lot of us. Also, I think that there's a lot of intellectual laziness. Just as there's physical laziness, there's intellectual or mental laziness. And I think someone said that uh, the brain is the most important muscle of all. And if you don't exercise it, it it'll get flabby, just like all of your other muscles. And uh, to, to read, to, to talk with other people, to really listen to other perspectives, to reason through complex, tough emotional issues, that takes a lot of energy, a lot of mental effort and even strain and, and can be uncomfortable. And a lot of people would maybe all of us, uh, to varying degrees, want to avoid that. Also, I suspect that we don't want, if, if we sense that we could be in danger of changing our minds on some issue, particularly if it's really important to us, the, the prospect of having to acknowledge that we've been wrong for so long, and maybe we've even 
been actively campaigning for the wrong side, that's, man, that's something that, uh, who wants to deal with that? That's really disturbing. I'll never forget a movie I saw in college in the early 1980s called Hearts and Minds. It was a, a, a documentary about the Vietnam War. And I'll never forget there was a an, an older couple, very quiet couple, being interviewed in their home suddenly at one point in the film. And they were talking about their support of the president and, and uh, our U.S. policy in Vietnam. And I didn't understand why the film was uh, spending time on this sweet old couple. And I didn't recognize them. I didn't know what supposed expertise they had on Vietnam. And then the camera cut to a framed picture of a, a young man in military uniform. And then it slowly hit me, oh my gosh, that's their son. And he was killed in Vietnam. And then, as a young person, you know, and you know, they were 20 when I saw the film, I thought, oh man, they ought to be enraged. They should be livid that their son was, you know, sacrificed, maybe for politicians selfish purposes in, in a faraway war. Oh my gosh. But then as I got older and I remembered back on that scene, I realized, no, no, God bless that couple. They have to believe that. The idea of believing that maybe their son died for nothing. Oh my gosh. No, that's, that's unbearable. I want them to believe that, uh, you know, we were absolutely, you know, that, that, no, he died for a righteous cause, and he may, and I believe that we were on the right side in Vietnam. But so, I, but I think that it's really, it's probably too disturbing for a lot of folks to think that they have been on the wrong side uh, all their lives on some issue. Maybe, I guess it depends on how emotionally invested you are in it. I mean, I, I have written for publication about my views on drug legalization, which are quite different from what they were when I was younger. If I wrote a column about abortion now, it would certainly be quite different from the ones that I wrote decades before. So I don't know. I mean, I, but you know, to be fair, I'm sure there are probably some issues in my life that are much more personal to me than abortion or drugs. And maybe if I change my mind about something super personal to me, it would be too unsettling to to publicly admit that I changed my views on that. I don't I don't know. Well when you interact, when you encounter young people, university students today, mm-hmm. what makes you the most hopeful? That the vast majority come across as kind and well-meaning. I have great concerns about them, like I do about every generation. I worry about how academically I think there's been a real significant erosion in how scholastically prepared the students on the whole are for college. I think with our popular culture emphasizing 
television and, and video games and the iPhone. I, I think we're reading less. I worry, but this is not unique to their generation. I mean, it's a, it's a widespread cultural problem. And, and when we're reading less, we're, we're, I think we're thinking less. When we're watching TV, that's much more of a, an emotionalistic medium. We're, we're, it encourages more emoting than, than thinking. So there, there are a number of, in a number of respects, I'm concerned about young people like I am about our whole society. But in so many other respects, I think that the college students of 2020 are much better than my generation. I mean, I was in college from 1980 to 84, and gosh, the present generation of college students smokes a whole lot less than mine did, drinks a whole lot less than mine, uses a lot less illegal drugs than mine, is not as sexually promiscuous as mine. Uh, we have the lowest teen birth rate in all of recorded American history today. Gosh, the abortion rate today is the lowest it's ever been recorded. We have about the same number of abortions today each year that we did at the time of the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court legalizing abortion on demand across the country. And that's down from over 1.6 million a year in the early 1990s. I mean, we we had a 35.6% abortion rate. Over a third of all pregnancies in this country were aborted circa 1990. Well, now it's it's... Uh, well under 20%. The young people today are far less racist than my generation. Gosh, when now I went to integrated public schools in Athens, but in all four years of my time at Clark Central, 1976 to 1980, and yes, that's the same Clark Central that has won so many state championships in football, twice, two of them when I was there, although I had nothing to do with it. But in all four years of my high school, at a school of about 1,700 students at that time, about two-thirds white, one-third black, and every weekday, every school day, I ate in the big cafeteria. And I can say that in all four years, not once did I ever see a black student sit with, at a table full of white students or a white student sit at a table full of black students. It was only, it was all white or all black tables. And there were very few, there were some, but, but not many interracial friendships. Absolutely, there was no interracial dating. If there was, it was completely on the slide. That would have been totally rejected by both communities. And really, the only times that I remember whites and blacks really coming together as one in my high school years was at sporting events. But the young people today, and for, for decades now, Oh, gosh, I, I see a, a light years more interracial friendships, interracial dating relationships. I really think that to such a great extent, the college students today, man, they're, they're post-racial. I don't sense remotely the racial tension that there was a few decades ago. The present generation of, of college students is far less bigoted against uh, homosexuals. When I was in college, God help you, if, if you were 
homosexual and out of the closet. I mean, I can remember in the 70s when I was in junior high, I was 12 or 13, and and we had first started to have our uh, boy, little boy-girl dances. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of dancing. The boys would be on one side of the room and the girls on the other. But I remember suddenly when I was in sixth or seventh grade, when friends and I would go to the movie theater. Now, and we never said anything to each other, but now when we would go into that darkened theater, when, when we would sit down, we would have an empty seat between us because we were so worried that what if anybody saw you know, Doug and Phil uh, or Doug and Rufus sitting together alone in a darkened theater watching a movie? Maybe they're on a date. Oh my gosh, could they be homosexual? I mean, you would get, you would go, we did go to great lengths to avoid the remotest perception of that. Well, now, I mean, people are, are open about it in class discussions. I mean, I can remember when, this was back in the 1990s, when I taught at Gordon College in Barnesville, Georgia. I brought to campus some friend and, and some, some friendly acquaintances of mine who uh, were lesbian. And I, this was back in the mid-90s when same-sex marriage had, had first become a big national issue. And I didn't dare ask the administration for permission to bring those young ladies to campus to speak to my class because I felt certain that that uh, I would be told no in no uncertain terms. And they spoke, but but it was controversial. It, it went very well. But I was called into the office of my division chairman after these young ladies spoke and they were college students at UGA and I was, it was made quite clear to me and no uncertain terms that I was never to do that again. Now this was just not even 25 years ago. So in many respects, yes, I do think that the students I'm teaching now are a lot more inclined to take people as individuals to not, judge them based on race or sex or religion or sexual orientation than my generation was. I think that in a lot of respects, the college students today are more, they have more of a live and let live attitude, uh, at least about a, a number of uh, matters where it was, that simply was not the case or not as much the case when I was coming up. So yes, there, it's always a mixed bag. I remember reading several years ago. And in fact, I've got this on my office window. It's a, a quote and it says something like, oh, the young people today are, are, they're not like their older generations. Oh, society is falling apart. Oh, things are just collapsing. And you look at the date of it and it's from, I think maybe a thousand years before Christ. <laughs> so, I mean, every generation has old and new challenges. And the one constant in the universe, it seems to me, you could argue, is, is evolution or change. Well, on the note of change, is there a change or a current trend that you've observed in the way people in American society think that you find particularly unsettling? Yes, sir. What I see as a movement away from 
discussing complex, tough issues in a mature, adult, intellectual manner. I, I think, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, it strikes me that more and more in this culture, we are thinking less and less and emoting more and more. I think that with television, visual media becoming so dominant, uh, and I think that TV is more of an action, conflict, emotionalistic medium, and I don't think I'm the first to say that, but it doesn't lend itself to mature analysis and reasoned thought, not nearly to the same extent, I believe, as the written word. But we're reading less newspapers, less news magazines, less books than ever before. And I think also, whereas when I came up in the 60s and 70s and even early 80s through my college years, most everyone in America who kept up with the news, we got the news from the exact same sources. So we had a common foundation of agreed upon facts that we simply don't have today. For example, growing up in the 60s and 70s, man, I felt so blessed because, oh gosh, we had cable TV, which meant we had 12 whole channels. And most folks only had four. Your local ABC station, NBC station, CBS station, and PBS. And that was it. And so the only, and, and the only news we got, this was long before 24-7 cable news networks, the only news we got on TV was, you know, you get a local 30-minute newscast at 6 p.m. followed by the national network news for 30 minutes at 6.30. And that was it. And to be sure, absolutely, in my opinion, there was an enormous amount of bias on ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS. I mean, they all, the journalists there all went to the same schools. Their children were in the same schools. I mean, they were the same political and socioeconomic uh, strata. But in any event, and we would read our local hometown newspaper. And there was a real tradition in, in my youth that you couldn't, you shouldn't be able to tell the political biases of any reporter unless, or of any newspaper, unless you were reading the two editorial pages. Like, for example, in Atlanta, the Atlanta Constitution was the morning newspaper, the Atlanta Journal was the afternoon paper. And the only difference between the two was they had two different editorial pages. The Atlanta Constitution was liberal and the Atlanta Journal was conservative. And that was the norm in, in virtually every big city in America. And we didn't have talk radio and we didn't have the internet. And frankly, we weren't very politicized. Politics for most Americans in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s was a really small part of our lives. A 30-minute newscast a day, a newspaper, that was it. Well, now, though, oh my goodness, we've got, think about it, all these 24-7 cable news networks. And since the 1990s, and I think it's worse than ever now, they're blatantly biased. There's, there's very little, if any, pretense of objectivity. And to that, the fact that in newspaper journalism, too, there's so much more in my opinion, blatantly biased hard news stories. I mean, it used to be there was a real ironclad rule that conservatives and liberals followed that your reporting was, was just the facts, ma'am, Joe Friday style, 
and you would only editorialize on the editorial pages. Well, that's not the way it is now. I mean, I read AP stories. I read Wall Street Journal stories. I, I read New York Times stories. The bias is, is blatant from page one, whether it's conservative or liberal. And you add to that talk radio, which, of course, is very, tends to be very biased. And this century, you add all the, the internet news sites, which tend to be very left-wing or very right-wing, and social media, which amplifies all that. And gosh, now the American people, it seems to me, have voluntarily segregated themselves into their own ideological bubbles. For example, and let me pick on both sides, Mr. Conservative will read the Wall Street Journal and for a newspaper and will listen to Rush Limbaugh or Dennis Prager, Mark Levin, a conservative talk radio host, and will watch Fox News and will read conservative websites like maybe the Daily Caller. Mr. Liberal will read the New York Times for his newspaper, will listen to NPR, National Public Radio, will watch CNN or MSNBC, and will read maybe the Huffington Post online. And so unlike during my youth, when whether you were a conservative or a liberal, we all had the same agreed upon, we got, we got the same news. Now, no. Conservatives and liberals see the world in very different ways. I mean, they're, they're not getting the same news. And it's very comforting, I think, to get whatever your bias is constantly massaged or, or reinforced. And so I think that helps explain a lot of the polarization in the country today. I really do believe that we are in a, as Dennis Prager puts it, a nonviolent civil war. And I think it's also so disturbing that we're living in separate neighborhoods and separate cities, separate parts of the country. Conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats, they watch different TV programs, not just news, but entertainment programs. We Increasingly, Republicans and Democrats choose different majors in college, different careers. There's, I think, a lot less, a lot fewer couples where you have a Democrat and a Republican dating. I mean, so I think the fact that we seem as a culture, as a society, to be leading increasingly self-segregated lives along the lines of politics and religion and cultural views, that has made us less willing or even able to, when we do come into contact with someone of a different political or religious or cultural perspective, so many of us seem to have a real hard time hearing the other person out. And I think with social media, with Twitter and Facebook, that puts a premium on people having short sort of bumper sticker posts, and people tend to be really strident. And also, hey, you can unfriend somebody on Facebook, or you can stop following somebody on Twitter, or whatever. And you know, we have what's called this cancel culture now, where, hey, if I disagree with you, you're not just a, a good person who has a different point of view. No, I mean, a lot of people, I think now, think that if you disagree with them, you're a bad person. And so I think that I'm really so troubled by the unwillingness 
of it seems to me ever more Americans of all ages to have a, re- a mutually respectful, mature discussion of issues. That's disturbing. And I think that the collapse of religion, of Judeo-Christianity in this culture, has really contributed to that. I think with the decline of religion in modern America, that's left a spiritual vacuum or hole in a record number of Americans' hearts. And as the old saying goes, where there's a space, something has got to fill it. And I think that for some people, their substitute religion is sports, they're sports fanatics, or it's drugs or sex. But for a lot of people, I think, especially for for a lot of these secular folks now with no religion, their new religion is politics. And their new faith is their political ideology. And their new church is their political party. And it seems to me one of the most comforting aspects of religion is the sense that, well, hey, we're going through tough times, but God's in control. It will all work out. You know, let God handle it. And there's a sense that I think most believers believe in a heaven, and they can look forward to that. But think about it, if, if you're secular, if you don't believe in a God, if you don't believe in an afterlife, well, then this life is it. And especially if your new substitute religion is politics, wow, that puts a real premium on, gee, we've got to change the society politically, or do whatever it takes to create our own heaven on earth right here, right now, because you know that's the only one we could ever hope to get. And... In politics, it seems to me, particularly among secular folks, I don't see a lot of forgiveness or tolerance for all the talk about how, oh, religious people are so intolerant. Gosh, I mean, it seems to me there's all kinds of forgiveness in the Bible. And and when I look at the, the heroes of the Bible, gosh, they're very imperfect people, but yet God forgives them and loves them. And yet it's, it strikes me that with so many folks in modern secular America— Gosh, if if a, a celebrity makes one stupid public tweet, one dumb public statement in an interview, oh my gosh, his whole career, his whole life is destroyed. He's boycotted, and there's just no understanding or context or forgiveness. And so it, it worries me that we're becoming a, an increasingly emotionalistic culture. Um, I think one of the most destructive modern beliefs is, oh, you got to follow your heart. You know, don't follow your head, follow your heart. Do what's, do what your heart tells you to do. Well, you know, your heart can tell you, hey, you know, I'd really like to get drunk, or I'd really like to try that dangerous drug, or I'd really like to cheat on my wife, or or do something right now because it feels good. I mean, your head is is what prevents you, if you're using it responsibly, to is what prevents you from sinning as much, uh, from doing irresponsible things. So I, I guess I'm worried about what I see as our long-term consequences of the decline of religion, the rise of a more emotionalistic society. And while I think it's great that I think the America of 2020 is in so many respects a lot less racist and sexist and 
bigoted than the society that I grew up in. In some other respects, I worry that we're becoming more tribalistic. I think there's a whole lot more identity politics now. And that's really concerning to me because it strikes me that here we're the most diverse society in history in terms of religion, geography, race, ethnicity, culture. And if we keep uh, stressing our supposed differences as identity politics does, gosh, that's how united is the United States of America going to be? I, I think that we need to think of ourselves as Americans more, think of ourselves as having an individual, unique individual identity. I think we need to avoid any notion of blind loyalty to whatever tribe we identify with. I think that's concerning. I think it's important, and I'm not saying this in any way of preaching at anybody, because I'm speaking for myself too. It's important sometimes to always be respectful of the other side. Yes, sir. I mean, online, it's very, very easy. You see something, and, and to you, it almost looks inflammatory. But, you know, I, I remember this from my time at college there. I remember I would always say, in speaking in the classroom, I, if I disagreed with someone, I would say, I respect your opinion, but... And eventually, I had a professor, and he said, you need to stop saying that. It's understood that you respect someone's opinion. And now, I don't think that's the case anymore. I agree. <laughs> but what do you think someone should do in this day and time when something that they, they sincerely believe, they're being criticized violently, they're being treated poorly for what they believe? What do you think that someone should do in that case? Uh, two thoughts immediately come to mind. One is to always try our best to obey Christ's golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that especially applies to precisely those times when someone is ugly to us. It's very easy to obey Christ's command when people are nice to us. The real test of whether you're going to love your neighbor and love thine enemy as thyself is can you turn the other cheek? Can you rise above someone else's really ugly anger, maybe totally unwarranted anger at you? So first, last and always, try to obey Christ's golden rule. Second, having said that, unless you're talking about an immediate family member or someone with whom you have to work on a regular basis— we're each the master of where we go and with whom we travel or visit or hang out with. And so I firmly believe that we should emotionally invest in those folks who respect us and close our accounts with those who don't. I have learned the hard way over the course of my 58 years that, in my opinion anyway, uh, I think Freud was, was right when he wrote, I believe, that the human personality, the human persona is basically set by about age five. And I've now known people 
a lot of people, relatives and and friends going back to first grade. I've now known a lot of folks for over 50 years. And I can tell you that without exception, everyone has the same basic personality he did as a small child. And so I really believe that with rare exceptions, most people do not change. Maya Angelou said, most people don't grow up, they simply grow old. And so if someone is rude to me, if someone is really ugly to me, I try to just respectfully ignore that person, to just politely walk away and, and, and never look back. Now, obviously, if it's somebody who uh, I really care deeply about, someone who's really important in my life, I mean, I'll try to work things out, of course. And, you know, if it's a colleague with whom I have to work, or if it's a student in one of my classes, I, I certainly will try to address the situation and find out, look, what, what's going on? You know, how can we work things out? But uh, as a general rule, I remember a, a mentor of mine, Dr. Don Gehring, he said, you don't want to ever get in an argument with, with someone who likes to play in the mud, because he enjoys that. And however you try to debate him or reason with him rationally, you're going to get muddy because he, he's only going to stay in that mud hole. So I think it is wise for people to just move on. If someone is really ugly to you, if, if someone is really unfair, if someone is mean, I think it's 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 good to just leave that person. And I think that if the person who was really ugly to you is capable of of uh, changing for the better, he'll recognize that. Hey, you know, maybe there's a connection between how I mistreated that lady and why she doesn't have anything to do with me anymore. Always have the door open. You know, if someone wants to make amends. Or be kind again, absolutely. But um, we don't have to tolerate a rude, mean behavior. And uh, I, I certainly don't think we should appease it. I think that as we appear to be hurtling towards an ever more emotionalistic culture, driven more and more by people screeching on Twitter and Facebook, there's a danger that you've got sort of a mob mentality. People shouldn't be allowed to get away with intimidating folks, particularly when no offense was intended. So I guess if, if someone is really vehemently disagreeing with you in, in an ugly, un, non-respectful way, I would uh, try to give the person the benefit of the doubt, at least to the extent of, trying to reason, well, gee, did I say something that could have gotten him upset? Was I unfair, unreasonable? But then, if you can't, for the life of you, see or recognize that you did something to warrant rude behavior, um, just, you know, <laughs> move on. Leave that, per you know, edit that person out of your life. Because, um, oh, people have talked about how, I can't remember who it was, but someone said, and I'm paraphrasing, People either nourish you or or deplete you, and this life is so uh, fragile and and precarious and short, and therefore all the more precious. That I just think it's 
critical if we're going to live a, a truly full, fulfilling life that we not waste uh, a single minute of it if we can. And, and you know, I regret all the time, particularly when I was younger and more naive, that I spent thinking I could change this person or that person. You know, that was, that was a waste of time. Well, Dr. Young, I've really enjoyed this opportunity to interview you. I have one um, more question. Sure. It occurs to me there's been a lot of things in your life, a lot of experiences, people you've met, places you've traveled. There have been books that you've read. I know I've, I've seen all the books in your office. Movies you've seen, paintings you've looked at, all of these things have molded your perspective. What's the best thing about having the perspective that you, Dr. Douglas Young, have? That's the toughest question you've asked. Um, so maybe it's the best. Huh. I, I don't know to what extent my overall perspective gives me the most comfort. I mean, I, I'm actually quite worried about a lot of long-term trends in America uh, and the world, but then the world and the country have always been troubled. And I, I certainly believe that the world and America have been through much worse times. I guess I know that at my age, now that I'm probably late in the third quarter of my life, I still get stressed. But if there's an advantage of age, it is that I have increasingly the perspective that, well, you know, I know I'm going through a tough time now, but if I'm honest and I look back over my life, I've been through a lot tougher times than this, and I've somehow always been able to get through it. And so I'm confident that I can somehow muddle through the present drama. And so I guess as we age, there's more of a sense that, um, uh, we'll get by. It will work out. And I guess we just have to sort of guard against complacency. But I think that my biggest regret is all the time, particularly when I was young, that I wasted worrying about this, that, seemingly everything. And my biggest worry should have been all the time I was wasting worrying over Usually what turned out to be nothing, trivial stuff. I think that I know that I had a, a sort of a one-two punch of significant emotional experiences in my late 20s when two childhood friends, including my first grade sweetheart, Missy Williams, she and Courtney Caskin each died of cancer in their late 20s. And... Those were the most shocking deaths of my life uh, among people I knew. You know, at 28, I certainly intellectually knew that death is real. But emotionally, I, I think I thought I, I would still live forever. Because the only people who had died in my personal life were much, much older relatives. And it was always sad, but it was not a tragedy generally. I mean, you know, they lived a, a long, good life. But wow, when Missy and Courtney died, suddenly the reality of death really hit me emotionally as never before. And I realized, oh my gosh, well, if they could get cancer 
and and die like that. Well, hey, I could too. Maybe I could get hit by a bus, uh, you know, driving home this afternoon. And so I made a conscious, deliberate decision in my late 20s that I would never again put off anything until tomorrow if I could help it. And since my late 20s, over the last 30 years, I have traveled way more than I ever did in my teens or 20s. I mean, when I was in my teens and and early mid-20s, I had this notion that, oh, you know, England's not going away. France is not going away. China's not going away. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Well, when Missy and Courtney died, I realized, well, you know, who knows how many tomorrows I'll have. And so I have deliberately tried to pack a lot more living in my 30s, 40s, and 50s than I ever did in my teens or my 20s because I know that, hey, every day means there's, you know, every at the end of each day, that, that's one less to go. And I try to discipline myself to whenever I debate about whether I should do this or, or you know, risk that, I try to imagine my tombstone. And as a buddy of mine from college, Richard Lynn said, you know, Doug, when you die, a year after you die, you'll still be dead. Ten years after you died, you'll still be dead. Ten thousand years after you died, you'll still be dead. Now, I certainly, as a Christian, I, I sure hope there's a heaven. But this is the only life I know I'm, I'm guaranteed, and I don't know how long I'll, I'll have. So I do find comfort from the fact that since I have taken a lot more risks uh, in my 30s, 40s, and 50s than I did when I was really young, and I realized that uh, – my life has been enriched far more from the uh, risks that I took professionally and personally. And I absolutely agree with the old Mark Twain quote that 20 years from now, you're going to regret far more the things you didn't do than the things you did. And all, and it's true, every, all of my great regrets in life are the things that I didn't do. And uh, so, uh, I guess as as I've gotten older, I have a sense that I am the master of my destiny. I, I do have God has given me the the freedom to choose, and life always somehow works out. And we need to live life uh, as fully as meaningfully as possible. And everybody's struggling. And I think the more honest we are with ourselves and with everyone else, and the more we listen to others and learn from others and, and you know, analyze our own lives, I think the more we realize that you know, we're on a journey and we're not going to reach all of our destinations. But as a lot of people have, I think, rightly pointed out, it's, it's that journey that's most important. And you know, how much did we grow during our lives and what all did we did we accomplish? What all did we do? And as we get older, if we have been trying to live to our full potential, hopefully we can look back and, and take some comfort in that and, and see how extremely worthwhile and meaningful this life can and should be. And so I think we should always be open to new experiences. President Carter put it so well, and I'm paraphrasing, he said we should remain true to unchanging principles, but, but uh, be flexible or open to new ideas and think about their application. And so it's, uh, 
we're so blessed to be living in America uh, in the year of our Lord, 2020 AD. We're in the richest, freest, most democratic, most equal rights respecting, most powerful nation, opportunity nation in the history of the world. So we have so much for which to be grateful. And I, I think that as Dennis Prager says, gratitude is the key to happiness. We, we, we need to not compare ourselves with others, but look at how far we've come. And if we're not satisfied with, with that, well, then let's, let's make some changes. You know, we're in control. We are the masters of our own destiny. And uh, with God's help, you know, I, I absolutely believe that uh, we are capable of far, far more than we are inclined to give ourselves credit for. Well, Dr. Young, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for sharing I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much, Paul. I have really enjoyed this chat, and I'm so honored and touched that you would want to interview me. And um, if anybody who listens to this would like to follow up with me about anything I said uh, to discuss it with me further, and feel free to disagree, my email address is Douglas young at ung dot edu and i am on facebook and um i'd I'd love to chat and i wish everyone all the very best and and uh, all the very best to you paul i i'm so impressed with all that you've done i'm i'm just amazed at at uh, all the very accomplished folks you have interviewed over the years on your program I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to it, and I'm just so honored to to, uh, to be in, in such august company as folks like Don McLean and Gene Wilder. So many, many thanks, and, and best wishes always, buddy. God bless. Thank you so much. God bless. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin, performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scanning G-Things, improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.